We've got a couple more weeks in John chapter 8. So this is kind of a, a part three in a sub-series. You know, Jesus is still in this heated conversation with the Jewish religious leaders. This is following the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, he went up to Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 7. Last week, he dropped an atomic bomb verbally on his audience. He told him in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. And we talked about this whole issue of paternity and heritage and lineage in the first century Jewish mind. And that was very important. It was a very serious topic. It's, as I joked before, it's like when we grew up, it was the equivalent of your mama jokes. You know, if you pushed that joke a little too far, you questioned their lineage or their heritage a little too much, and you got a little too personal, it would oftentimes turn into a physical altercation. This is kind of where this conversation is going to go. But what we see in this conversation is they keep going back and forth. Jesus kind of goes on and explains further why he said what he said about them in verse 44. You're going to see them kind of bounce back with the criticism. And it just works our way through the end of John chapter 8, where it ends with another mic drop moment. We'll see that one next week. And then this group picking up stones to stone Jesus. So we kind of know where this conversation is going. The, the, the tension just keeps getting thicker and thicker. But what's really interesting about this morning is the audience commits, Jesus' audience commits the unpardonable sin. Now, that's a topic that comes up a lot in conversations with people. What is the unpardonable sin? Well, it's interesting because they're going to commit it this morning. Oftentimes, when you hear that phrase, you think, oh, that, was, oh, that only happened one time. It was in Matthew 12. We're going to see that actually they did this often throughout the life of the ministry of Jesus. They committed the unpardonable sin actually many times. And again, we'll get into what that is here when we get into the text. But basically... When they come back with Jesus and they basically say, no, you're demon-possessed, it's the equivalent of saying, all right, if you say our father's the devil, you're demonically possessed, you know, nanny, nanny, boo-boo. Whatever you throw on me, I'm like, what's it? I'm like rubber, you're glue. Whatever bounces off me sticks to you, right? Kind of that, that immature argumentation uh, that goes on here. And this is basically what they're saying. And so in 44, we just saw that Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in, in truth. And then when he speaks a lie, <clears throat> he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. And so this kind of leads us into really verse 45. And he's going to say, uh, you know, I tell you the truth and you don't believe me. And in verse 45, he says, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. In this phrase, but because, it's kind of translated that way in every version, but it's, it actually could be translated for this reason. In other words, Jesus is explaining that they don't believe him because of their lineage, because of who their true father is. This is why they don't believe him. And you know, sometimes the truth hurts, doesn't it? The truth can hurt. Even when truth is loving, it can still hurt. Even when truth makes you feel bad and it hurts you, oftentimes it can be for your benefit. I think that's actually what's going on here with Jesus. He's trying to tell them the truth. Now, it looks like he's trying to win an argument. Looks like he's trying to hurt them by saying, you're of your father, the devil. But he's actually trying to expose their thinking to see, see, you guys aren't thinking correctly. You're not processing this information that I'm sharing correctly. And he says, you do not believe me. Believe is our word that we see, you know, a hundred times in the book of John. The Greek verb is pastu. It means to believe, have faith in, to be firmly persuaded. They weren't persuaded by anything Jesus said. They weren't going to rely on anything Jesus said. In fact, it seemed like when Jesus opened his mouth, they automatically had 
the, uh, you know, the stiff arm up. I'm not listening, you know, just stop, you know, kind of deal. They had gotten to that point when Jesus, so they weren't believing him. They were simply rejecting him. They weren't willing to listen to or trust in his words regarding his origin and authority. And it didn't seem to matter what tactic Jesus used. They just wouldn't listen. Jesus is, is incredible. Because like I've said before, when you're trying to convince somebody of a truth and eventually they reject you enough, you're just fine, like, fine, whatever, you know, drive off the cliff. I don't care. You know, go ahead. Just hurt yourself, kill yourself, flunk the test, whatever. I used to, I used to get that attitude with my math students when I used to teach high school math. I would literally, sorry, this is, this is like PTSD, even remembering this. I would literally give them a test review and I would literally tell them, this is your test. I'm going to change numbers on this sheet of paper and give you this test tomorrow with the same exact questions. If you pay attention, you will get an A on the test. And right after I finished that incredibly passionate speech, half of my class would go to sleep on their desk. And I'm just like, you know what? Fine. Y'all can flunk out. I don't care. And when your parents call me, I'm going to tell them what you did sleeping in class. We, we get that attitude often. We get impatient often. Jesus, you just notice throughout this conversation, he is just trying different tactics because he loves, he bleeds love for people who want to kill him. He just doesn't stop. This is the amazing thing. You know, there's a song, and I, I don't know if I agree with all the words in the song, but it's that overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God that pursues. This is what we're seeing here. Because quite frankly, if Jesus said, you know what, forget it, guys, <laughs> I'm done. Most of us would be like, well, that's good. Yeah, I understand why Jesus did that. But he doesn't do that. He just keeps pursuing. And so he tries another approach now in verse 46. He's kind of trying a logical approach, okay? And he says, look, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He tries a logical argument approach, which is, goes something like this. Convicting means to shame or disgrace, to prove somebody's in the wrong, and thus to shame him. And what Jesus is doing, it's a pretty strong challenge. He's saying, right now in this moment, I'm going to make myself bare to you. And if you can point out anything that I've done wrong, I will, let me be quiet. Go ahead. Now, quite frankly, that would be kind of scary for most of us. You know, in fact, if we were to do that with some people, they would be like, how much time do you have? Because I, I've got a couple hours worth of things that you've done wrong, right? Jesus just puts that out there. And the argument is going to be this. If you can't come up with a single thing that I've done wrong, why won't you believe what I say? Why won't you trust that I'm telling you the truth? And so he's exposing himself with, to any kind of criticism his audience could come up with. Now, they probably could come up with a criticism. Their criticism would be Jesus healed on the Sabbath. That's probably their criticism. But if they would have even brought that up to him and allowed him to explain the Sabbath, which he, he got to do in other gospels in certain, certain accounts, they still didn't receive what he said. They still said, oh, Jesus, your interpretation is wrong. Ours is right. They still thought he was wrong. They were convinced that he was wrong. Do you know that, that even in the Quran, I was, as I was reading this week, that even in the Quran, you know, Jesus has mentioned the Quran, there's not re one recorded instance where Jesus sinned. You can't even point it out in a book that just view, you know, kind of minimizes Jesus. But even there, you can't find out anything that he did wrong. And right here, they're not going to be able to come up with one. They don't come up with one in the, other, uh, the, the rest of the conversation. So Jesus then puts forward, well, there's only one other option, guys, and that's this. 
If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? If you can't point out anything I've done wrong, then I'm telling you the truth. And now you got a bigger problem because you're not believing the truth. What's, what's up with that kind of is the idea. In fact, he says, if I tell the truth, he uses a, uh, a conditional statement here. It's, an, it's a way to form an argument. It could be literally translated, if I tell the truth, and let's assume for argument's sake that I am telling the truth, then here's the question, okay? Why would you not believe somebody that was telling the truth is kind of the idea. And so if they couldn't prove that Jesus was wrong, then he was telling the truth at that very moment, right? If he's not, if he's not a liar, then he's telling the truth at that very moment. If, they, if he's done nothing wrong, then he's telling the truth at that moment. Why won't they trust him? And this is what he wants to point out. You've only got two options here, guys. And I've just tried to expose the fact that you've got no ground, no legs to stand on with this first option because I've never done anything wrong. The only other option you got is to believe that I'm telling you the truth and to trust me. And what I'm saying. So he's, again, he's, he's going after their minds. He's trying to convince them and persuade them to trust in him. And so he skillfully backed them out of the corner. And, and they're not uh, going to get out of it. Now, we'll say this. Probably Jesus read this on their faces because he doesn't give an, uh, an opportunity to answer the question. He kind of answers his own rhetorical question. And he's going to explain to them exactly why they're doing this. He's, he's going back. Again, what had he just said in verse 44? You, you're, you're out of the wrong source. You're in the wrong family. And this is having an impact on the way that you're viewing me and my message. He's going to keep going back to one of his, really, I think, his, one of his main observations throughout this conversation. And that's simply, simply this. This group right here is phony hypocrites. They're a bunch of hypocrites because they claim to represent God. They claim to value the word of God. They claim to be his representatives to the, to the people for God on earth, and yet they're rejecting God's message and they're rejecting God's messenger. You can't be a bigger hypocrite than that. And so this is exactly what these men are doing. And so Jesus, again, goes back now in verse 47, and he says this, he, he, he makes this family paternity comment again. He who is of God or, or born of God or from God's family, if you will, out of God, hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. You see, it keeps going back to this paternity argument. And he, and he uses here, if you don't hear God, then you're not really one of his children. This is the argument he's making with this particular group. So if a person is out of God, basically meaning that God's their father. Now, if you recall, and, and, and what he goes on to say is if, if that were true, then you would hear his words right now. You would recognize that your father is speaking through me is what he's saying. And if you recall, if you go back up to verse um, 41, that's exactly what they claim. They said, we, they said to Jesus, we were not born of fornication, but then they say, we have one father, God. They were claiming a divine family position. And Jesus is saying, well, if that's true of you, then you would be able to recognize when God is speaking, when God is giving you a message. And this is Jesus's point here. He's again reminding his audience that the words he, are, he is speaking is directly coming from God. And this is his point. If, if you love the Father like you say you would, you listen to his words, period. And be, the fact that you don't is proof that God is not your Father, but Satan is. That's kind of his argument here. Therefore, he says, you don't hear because you're not of God. And I love this word here. It's the same word used uh, in this verse a couple of times. It means to hear with attention. It means to hear with the ear of the mind. You know, just because you hear sounds coming out of somebody's mouth, 
This, that, that's not this word here. Okay, that's, that's an audiology thing. That's like, okay, you go, to the, you go to the ENT and get your hearing tested. Okay, yeah, your hearing's working. You know, and, and, I, and I love, it's funny because some of the stories that come out of ENTs is that the wife will bring a husband in to an ENT and say, we got to get this guy's hearing checked. He, he's just not hearing very well. And it's like a really hard conversation when the ENT goes back in, his hearing's perfect. Selective hearing is his problem, you know. This is what we're talking about, not having selective hearing. Hearing with the ear of the mind. What does that look like? That means that you're not formulating your argument while the other person is still talking, thereby not even listening to the point that they're making. You're not rejecting someone outright the moment their mouth starts moving because you've already determined you're not going to listen. Your ear gets hit in those conversations, but you're not hearing. You're not hearing with the ear of the mind. And this is what Jesus is saying. You guys aren't listening. You guys aren't even processing. You guys aren't even considering what I'm saying. And so this is actually proof that they're not of God. And you know, when we look at what they're doing here, they're rejecting really two things. They're rejecting Jesus Christ, his person, because they're rejecting his self-proclaimed identity and they're rejecting his mission. They're rejecting the kingdom that he was offering to them. They're rejecting all of his signs and wonders. In fact, they have a way of explaining away his signs and wonders as being demonically empowered. They're rejecting all of that. So they're not hearing Jesus. In in all of this, it it was designed to convince them and persuade them that Jesus was the man prophesied about all throughout the Old Testament. And because, Jesus' point, because they've got the wrong father, they're in the wrong family, and they can't hear. They're not listening. They're not even taking it into consideration. Now, it's not that they don't have the ability to hear. We've talked about that. The reason they don't hear is because they are volitionally choosing not to hear. How do I know that? Well, we know Nicodemus eventually gets saved. We're going to see Nicodemus try to defend Jesus a little bit later. We're going to see other Pharisees believed, but they wouldn't speak out because they might be put out of the synagogue. So some were convinced. Some were, quote unquote, hearing Some had a different father by now. They had trusted in Christ. Many had believed, this text tells us. But again, the overarching uh, heart of the group was one of rejection, one of violent opposition to Jesus. And now in verse 48, we finally get their response. You know, it's like, what, what did they say when Jesus said, your father's the devil? Here's what they said, verse 48. Basically, they're gonna say, we're right, you're wrong. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo, right? It's like, I'm rubber, you're glue. I mean, it's just like, this is where they're going. And then they're going to come with some really hardcore personal attacks on Jesus. Verse 48 says this, Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? This word say, it's interesting. It's, it's a present indicative. Present indicative can have a, a different emphasis and continuation. Sometimes it just, sometimes it doesn't. You kind of got to go to the context. But I would make the argument that right now that they kept on saying this. Right now and continually, they kept on saying something. And the thing that they kept on saying was simply this, you're a Samaritan, you have a demon. And that seems to be their messaging that went on commonly as it relates to Jesus. You're a Samaritan, you're a demon, especially in this instance, they were probably repeating it. Like someone said it and they're like, yeah, you're right, he is. And they said, yep, you're right. And they just started to kind of saying it over and over again to identify it. And what's really interesting 
is the way that they have now, and, I, and you see it, it's really subtle, but you see that they're evaluating what they said. They called it, we've rightly said. In other words, what they're saying is, we're looking at our own words, we're looking at our own evaluation, and we are more convinced than ever that we are correct and accurate in our evaluation of you. You are wrong, we are right. And in fact, in their minds, as Jesus goes further, they couldn't be more right than they already are. Jesus could say nothing at this point to change their thinking. And this is basically what they're saying. And so instead of responding, again, hearing Jesus's words in a reflective or humble way, even just considering what Jesus said, maybe asking some probing questions of Jesus to try to understand exactly what he was trying to, to say, they, they actually doubled down. And they use what he just said as, as more proof that what they've been saying is right and what he's been saying is wrong. And you can see, if anyone's ever been in an argument or a conversation like that, you know what you're up against. This is what Jesus is up against, but probably at a much more vicious and intense level than maybe you've ever experienced. I don't know if anyone's ever stared you in the face and wanted to kill you. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that has happened. But this is the intensity level of this conversation. So it's very intense. They are right. Jesus is wrong. And the two things that they repeatedly said about him was this first one, you are a Samaritan. Are, again, present tense. They're accusing Jesus of being a Samaritan. We looked a little bit about really the view of Samaritans when we were in John chapter 4. But obviously, they were hated. This, again, could have been another aspersion cast on his birth. Maybe his unknown dad was a Samaritan. Boy, that would have been scandalous because Samaritans were half-breeds, right? They were, they were worthless. They weren't even worth the ground. I mean, Jews wouldn't even go through Samaria. They wouldn't use utensils that Samaritans used, right? It was, it was a very highly charged, racist view of a people group because of their lineage. And so they're, they're basically coming out with the, the hardest, harshest put-down that they can think of right here. You are a Samaritan. Also, it could have been another way, as I've alluded to, to, to lob an ad hominem attack, since no Jew would ever be want to, would want to be called a Samaritan. This would be, as we would say, those are fighting words. Take that back, right? Don't call me a Samaritan. That's, those are fighting words. Take that back. So this is what's going on here. Now, by the way, it's just kind of interesting. It's, it's just the Bible study. It's the, only, it's the only record we have recorded right here in this verse where they actually lobbed this charge at Jesus in the Gospels. We don't see it anywhere else. It's the only place we see it. So it might have been, and I think it probably is very unique to this conversation on paternity, right? They're going back and forth on, well, who's your dad? Who's your dad? Who's your father? Well, my, my dad's that. Nope, nope, that's not your father. So they're going back and forth. So I think it's a, it's a slight on his paternity. Again, they had questioned his paternity earlier. Remember in verse 41, they said, we're not born of fornication. Again, casting aspersions, I think on the virgin birth, story. They're like, you don't even know who your dad is. We have, and then what do they go on to say? We have one father implied. Jesus, we don't know how many fathers you have. We don't know how that all went down. It's kind of the idea. So they're casting aspersion on his birth. Now, nothing is new under the sun. You know that modern legal training goes something like this. If you have the facts on your side, pound the facts. If you have the truth on your side, pound the truth. And if you have neither on your side, pound your opponent. And that's legal strategy even today. They teach that in law school. And that's the legal strategy. Well, you know what? They didn't have the facts on their side, so they couldn't pound the facts. They didn't have the truth on their side, so they couldn't pound the truth. But they, you know what they did? They had neither. And so what were they doing? Pounding their opponent. And this is where they're coming after Jesus. Now, the second thing they say, we're going to 
look a little bit more in detail at, but you have a demon, he says. Have is this present tense, basically right now, as Jesus is talking to him, you're demon-possessed. You, you are being governed by a demon. Now, this makes sense because what did Jesus just told them in, in verse 44? You're of your father, the devil. No, we're not. No, we're not. No, we're not. You are. <laughs> You're a demon. You know, so it, it comes out naturally here. And so some in this same crowd had said something similar. If you go back, it's just a day before, although it's, a, you know, a chapter in a few weeks for us, many weeks for us. But 720, when we were back there, notice what it says. The people answered and said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So they have already said this to Jesus. They also continue communicating this in the future. We won't look at those, but you can jot that down, 852 and 1020. And what's fascinating about this is that at least six months before this event that we're looking at this morning, during Jesus's Galilean ministry, the Jewish religious leaders accused Jesus of something similar. This is what's come to be known as the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is not Anything, I would make the argument, it's not anything that anyone in this room or in this generation could commit. So hopefully that relaxes you a little bit. But they, because people will oftentimes say that they can lose, if they can lose their salvation, they can lose it if they somehow commit the unpardonable sin. Every person that's ever told me that or had concerns about that, I have asked them, what is the unpardonable sin? And to this day, none of the people who have told me that could ever tell me what it is. They just say, well, I don't know, but you just don't want to do it. I just don't know what it is, but I just want to avoid it. I don't know what it is, though. The unpardonable sin is very simple. We don't have time to develop this for Matthew 12 this morning. They are accusing Jesus Christ, who is in their physical presence, of doing miracles that were prophesied about from the Old Testament that the Messiah would do, and they're saying that the way that he's doing, the empowerment that he's using, is demonic in its source rather than the Holy Spirit that's the unpardonable sin. So it was a sin that could be committed in the first generation, which they did, by the way, multiple times. And it's basically this. It's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. They have this diametrically opposed view of the word of God. God has sent forth his son to the world to do the exact things he said his son would do on planet earth. And the Pharisees are sitting around watching him do the things that they've been studying all their life. And they say, no, not of God, got to be of Satan. That was the unpardonable sin. They, they should have known better. And then they led the nation to reject their Messiah. And by the way, this is the reason that Jesus has delayed the long-awaited kingdom that was promised to the Jews. They rejected their king. How's a king going to reign if the people won't go underneath them? It doesn't happen. And this is why when Jesus says this, and when they've committed the impardonable sin, and by the way, did they just do it in Matthew 12? No, they just did it again here in John 8. They do it multiple times. You start tracing that through the gospels. Every time they accuse Jesus of having a demon, they're basically saying the works that you do, the miracles you're performing are all demonically sourced. They're committing the unpardonable sin right there. And they do it many times, actually. We just usually go to Matthew 12 because it's, a, it's kind of a clean break in the structure of Matthew. But this is why Jesus, as he's coming into the city of Jerusalem in Matthew 23, following his triumphal entry, he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name 
of the Lord. And when, is the, when are the Jewish people corporately going to say that? Zechariah 12.10, when he comes back in the clouds and they recognize the one whom they've pierced. Not until that day. But it also explains why Jerusalem and the city were destroyed. The temple were destroyed in 70 AD. It was a direct judgment on the, on the Jewish people for the rejection of their Messiah. And we see it just borne out here. Jesus is going to go on and say, basically, in verse 49, you just straight up dishonor me. <laughs> and basically saying, you don't even know the value that I have, the value that I sought to bring to you. You just have dishonored me and just put me on a low end of the totem pole. By the way, we'll come back to this in a second, but in the Jewish mind, we've got to put ourselves back in the first century. The Jewish mind saw a miracle and immediately they thought, there's only two sources for that. It's either divine or it's of Satan. Satan is falsifying a miracle. And it was their job, they felt as religious leaders, to determine which one of those two sources it was coming from. The problem with, in this situation, is they miscalculated they misevaluated Jesus. And so they said, well, they had made up their mind, well, he can't be divine, so it's got to be satanic. And this is why they go that route with the unpardonable sin. So let's jump to now uh, to verse 49 in John 8. Let's read, excuse me, verse 49 through 51. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And so Jesus just <laughs> acknowledges the claim and just straight denies it. He's not presently demon-possessed. Farthest from the truth, he's possessed by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is leading him. It's the exact opposite of what they're evaluating. And notice how he says that I honor my Father. I love this word, and we're going to kind of work off of this for a little bit. But it means to esteem. It means to reverence. It means to bestow special marks of honor and favor upon some, someone. It means to, to prize or to fix a value or a price upon something, to give recognition. Every married person in this room has done this with their spouse because at marriage, you took them off the market. And by the way, you took yourself off the market too. <laughs> and you put that person in a place of high honor and you put that person in a, in a place of high privilege and I hope that as you go about your day, that maybe you've got a special ring on your phone for your husband or your wife, or you've got a special sounding text, and that you can be in a conversation anywhere with anyone, and you can ignore every call, even if it's coming from someone really important. But when you hear that ring from your spouse, you say, excuse me, someone very important is calling me. And you have this way of just setting them apart. This is what Jesus is talking about here. He honors his father. He esteems his father. So in contrast to being demon-possessed, in contrast to being honoring Satan and his wishes, Jesus goes back to his own relationship with the father, which is something his audience obviously lacked. And Jesus is saying everything he's doing, everything he's saying is for the benefit of esteeming and fixing a high value on the father and his will for Jesus's earthly life. Now, he stated this many different ways over and over again in the book of John. We've seen that. The things I say, it's I don't say unless the Father said it. Things I do, I don't do unless I've seen the Father do it. Everything in his life was geared around this fact of honoring the Father. Wouldn't that be a great way to live the Christian life? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that just be a great way? I mean, we want to sometimes, but boy, we fall down many times as well because we kind of get in the way. 
We kind of trip on our own feet, so to speak. Uh, But Jesus didn't do that. He esteemed his father. And by the way, everything his audience was doing was the exact opposite of that, even though they thought they were. And again, Jesus is just making this effort to point this out. Because by dishonoring Jesus, they didn't understand the connection that they were now dishonoring the father because Jesus was the father's messenger bearing the father's message. And so they didn't see this contradictory nature. And they said, they dis, uh, Jesus said, you dishonor me. It's a different but related word. It means to dishonor, to treat with indignity. It means to treat shamefully. It means to treat with low status. And by the way, do they continue that kind of dishonoring throughout the rest of Jesus's earthly life? Yeah, it gets worse. Eventually, they're going to turn him over to the Romans. They're going to beat, uh, beat him to a pulp uh, within an inch of his life. They're going to put a crown of thorns on his head, mocking him. They're going to nail him to a cross, which was the worst type of death anybody could die in that culture. They, did they dishonor Jesus Christ? You better believe it. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good. And three days later, he raised that man who was beaten to a pulp, who died a real death, who spent time, uh, if you will, paying for the sins of the world and being separated from the one that he loved. And he raised him from the dead to convince you and I that we can rely on that man to conquer death for us. It's just, it's just a beautiful picture, but this is how they were treating Jesus. And so it's important to note, and I think this is important to point out, they weren't simply apathetic toward Jesus. They hated him. They were going out of his way to put him down. You know, if we were trying to put someone down in our church, you know, it, it wouldn't be like, oh yeah, they come in and just nobody acknowledges them. We would literally take him and say, hey, I got the Rodney Dangerfield seat for you in the back. Anyone remember Rodney Dangerfield? You know, I must be in the front row and they take him up to the, to the bleachers. That would be an aggressive, shameful way to treat somebody. It's to go out of your way to bring them or to try to put them low. This is what this group was doing to Jesus. And here's what's interesting. Jesus is pointing it out to him here, but then he's going to be careful so that they don't think that he's trying to just self-promote. And that's actually what he says in the very next phrase. He says, uh, you know, you should be honoring me, but I'm not saying that because I'm self-promoting. He says, I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. And Jesus is saying, right now, I'm not looking for your praise. I'm not looking to find popularity or worth or reputation amongst those that, I, that I'm ministering to. I'm not seeking that. That's not my primary focus. In fact, if that comes, great. And quite frankly, it should have came. He was pretty convincing the things that he was doing and saying. It should have been convincing. It was for many. But this isn't what was going on. But the reason that Jesus got up in the morning was not so that he could hear rabbi, rabbi in the streets of Israel. The reason Jesus didn't go up in the, grow up or wake up in the morning was not to go down to the temple and say, how many did we have here last week? 500? I think we got 600 today. Yeah. I'm growing in popularity. I'm, I'm the man. Everyone's going to come listen to me. It's not why he did anything. Jesus woke up and said, daddy, what do we got going on today? What, what kind of plan you got for me today? I'm in. You want me to go in the wilderness? Okay, let's go do it. You want me to speak to 600 people? Let's do it. That's what you want, dad. That's all I want. This is how Jesus lived his life. And he's just communicating. I'm not seeking my own glory. See, Jesus's pursuit was always and only the will of God, the father and glory for him. For God, the father, glory for him. 
You know, and this is sad because many of us, I think that's our heart's desire in our Christian life. I really believe that. I think I want to give you guys and myself the benefit of the doubt, although I even as I look at my own life, sometimes I don't give myself the benefit. I'm like, what am I doing? What are you doing? You idiot, you know? I'm harder on me than probably on anybody else. But oftentimes our motives are impure. Our motives are mixed. Sometimes we don't even realize it until much later. We beat ourselves up. We get upset with ourselves. But wouldn't it be nice just to be uh, just in pure motives in everything that we do and just wanting God's glory? Oftentimes we get exposed. You know, I remember, I forget who said this, but if you think you're a servant of God with pure motives, one way you'll find out is if someone actually treats you like a servant. And then you realize if your motives were pure. When someone, if you claim to be a servant of God and then you get treated like a servant and you get bent out of shape by that, probably the motives have been exposed, right? And so it's just this mindset. And, I, and I've said this before, but I think it's so helpful. It helps me and hopefully it helps you. Jesus lived his life for an audience of one. Other people got to see his life as he lived it, but he had, he had, his focus was on one chair in the audience of his life, and that was on his father. And see, each of us can live our Christian life the same exact way, with, a, with an occupation, an audience of one, and it always ought to come back to why do you do the things that you do? Why? Not just do the things you do, not just do a bunch of activity. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Where's my motive? Am I doing it for an audience of one? And oftentimes when you take that attitude, guess what? It doesn't matter who thanked you or who didn't thank you. It doesn't matter who noticed and who didn't notice. None of that matters because you know what? The only one who matters noticed. And the only one who matters was honored by that. And the only one who matters is glorified by that. And the only one that matters is sitting in his chair in the audience of your life saying, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm proud of you. My dearly beloved child, thank you. I'm so proud of you. And isn't that what we live for anyways? Isn't that what we should live for? Is his applause? We get so distracted. Jesus is a great example of that. He always and only wanted the will of God the Father to bring him glory. But here's what's mind-blowing. And it's just this subtle statement that Jesus, I mean, it's just incredible. Because as Jesus was focused on the Father's glory, guess what the, folk, the Father was focused on? Jesus' glory. There's this mutual love and desire. And it's like, it's like, you know, if someone's up winning an award, right? And, and it's two people and they're like, no, no, you, you take it. And they're like, no, 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 you take it. You know, no, 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 you take it. And they end up at the back of the, the, back of the stage after a while because they keep trying to push one another up front. This is what's going on in the Godhead. This, this love, I mean, the Father is so pleased with Jesus Christ. He just wants people to see it. And his audience won't see it. This is what's so incredible. So Jesus brings us out. Hey, I don't seek my own glory, but guess what? There is one who seeks, and there is one who judges. And I, I love this word that's used here for seeks because it's, it describes an intense or an active seeker. In fact, the, the Greek word is where we get our word zealous from, if you if that kind of brings up an image of what this looks like. It's an articulated participle, and this is why the emphasis is really, it's an adjective, it's adjectival. It's just describing the father as a seeker. He's an intense seeker of something. And the question is, what is he seeking? In context, it seems to refer to the fact that he's seeking Jesus's glory. He wants Jesus's honor and reputation adequately understood and accurately proclaimed. This is what God the Father's after. Can you imagine? The, 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 the love within the Trinity 
is something that's never waned over the years. God the Father is excited when Jesus Christ receives glory, and Jesus is excited when the Father receives glory, and they work hand in hand in this way. And so although Jesus wasn't seeking his own glory, it didn't mean he wasn't worthy of the glory that was due to him. And the Father was, I believe, working hard to convince people as well from that. John 17 one through five, we won't go there, but you can just jot that down and look. When we get there, it's going to be, basically, it's called Jesus's high priestly prayer, but he desired to be glorified. You're going to see that in John 17, but you're going to notice the emphasis there is he is waiting patiently for the father to do it. He's not going to demand it himself. He's not going to make it happen himself. He's not going to initiate it. He's literally waiting for the father to glorify him. So even in the end of his life, he's not seeking to glorify himself. He's waiting for the Father to do it. And so it's just amazing. So if your heart is to glorify Jesus Christ, you can stand firmly on the word of God and said, I am in line with what God the Father wants. He's a seeker of the glory of Jesus Christ. So am I. And that's how I want to live my life in line with the Father's desire for him. So it's very important to the Father that Jesus receives glory and honor and reputation. This is why, well, no, I'm going to get off track. All right. So the very next thing that's important to the father is what we see here or the the other description. He's an accurate judge. There's one who judges. There's one who evaluates. Again, articulated participle. He's a judge, a judge of what though? And I would say in context, he's, he's an evaluator of what Jesus is saying. In other words, his source of ministry is not demonic. It's of God. It's a divine source of ministry. And one day, God the Father is going to validate Jesus. And I think this is what Jesus is saying. I'm not seeking my glory. God the Father is. And one day, he'll evaluate this ministry. And and he will validate and verify that I was who I said I was. This is where I think he's going. I think that's the nutshell. The only one that matters will one day vindicate me, I think is what Jesus is saying. And then he makes this statement. I appreciated, I, I enjoyed Leonard's response to this verse when he was reading uh, the scripture. But he's in verse 51, we'll kind of point this out as we go. But he, he, he starts verse 51. If you kind of look there in verse 51, he starts with that phrase, most assuredly. So he starts with a very emphatic statement. And what we're going to show is that he, uh, he ends verse 51 with a very emphatic phrase. And so we, we've got, in verse 51, an emphatic sandwich, okay? It's like both sides are very emphatic coming into this verse and coming out of this verse. And the, one, uh, the first part there, the intro, most assuredly, it's just the phrase, amen, amen, in the Greek. You know, amen is one of those words that just, just keeps getting transliterated from every language. It's, it's a, if you didn't know this, you, you know a Hebrew word, amen. And you know a Greek word, amen. And you know an English word, amen. It's all, it all means the same, right? It's, a, it's an agreement. It's a yes. But when you put it together like this in the Greek language, it was an emphatic way of saying, stop what you're doing. Listen to what I'm about to say, because it's super duper trustworthy. You can take what I'm about to say to the bank. It's a way that Jesus kind of called attention to what he was about to say. In fact, he does it four times in this dialogue alone. This is a third of the four times. We'll see the final one in verse 53 next week. He's about to say, it's very important, if anyone keeps my word. Now he switches conditional classes here. He goes to a third class condition. Third class condition, maybe you will, maybe you won't. I'm not assuming that you will, but I'm not assuming that you won't. It's, def- it's like our conditional statements. If you do this, 
then this will happen. It's just like that. So it's a third class uh, condition here. And this condition, in this case, is this idea of keeping Jesus's word. Now, I want to I slow down with this word for just a few minutes because I think this is one of the most misunderstood words in all the Bible. So let me... I know, now I got to deliver with that, right? So, but I, but I really do. I really feel like this is one of the most misunderstood words in all the Bible. And I'll tell you why. Because this word keep is the Greek word tereo. It means to keep an eye on, to watch, and hence to guard. It meant to, to watch something or to observe attentively. It meant to keep your eyes fixed on something. Where was it used in, in the Greek culture? It was used of a warden guarding a prisoner. They, they wouldn't take their eye off the prisoner so that the prisoner wouldn't escape because in this culture, you'd lose your life on that. So it was keeping a close eye on. It was guarding a prisoner. It was keeping a close eye on something valuable. So if you were tasked with guarding, uh, you know, the, the diamond, then you wouldn't be like, hey, I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to go get some coffee. I'll come right back for that. You wouldn't do that. You'd be like, you'd be like locked in. Ain't no one stealing that diamond while I'm awake, right? So this is the, the communication of the word. Now, typically, let me just ask this question just to kind of get your mind rolling. Typically, when you see that word keep in the scriptures, especially in John, we automatically insert the word obey. We feel like those are synonymous. But you can see the meaning of the word itself. Generically, it's not, we're not talking about obeying. We're talking about keeping our eyes fixed on something, valuing something. That's the idea. Those of you that know me, I'm not a big fan of cats. But we've got three of them in our house, so I don't feel too bad for cats. Uh, in fact, I feed them in the morning, every morning. So, But we do have a cat right now, and I really like this cat. I, I hate to admit that my family's not here, but they're watching online. So they, But they know I like this cat. First cat in my life I've ever actually liked, because there's a lot of reasons. I won't get into that. But the one thing I don't like about this cat is if we are fixing lunch in our kitchen— and one of my kids is finished fixing lunch and they've got to go to the bathroom or go get a water or go somewhere else. They'll say, dad, can you watch my lunch? And the reason you have to watch lunches in our house or you can't even leave food in packages on the counter in our house is because of this little joker named Tom. Tom is a stealth food ninja that can jump on a counter without you hearing him and he will, he will burn through... This guy, what did he eat? He ate like Bucky's beaver nuggets one time. He dove into the bag and he's crunching on beaver nuggets. This cat does this constantly. And, he, and he's, like, he's like clockwork. If you leave any food out, he's on it within a second. And sometimes you don't hear him. So I thought, I'm going to train this cat not to do that because I don't want to sit around and watch. Because I literally, if they leave, I have to watch their plate. Because this cat will get in without me seeing, and he'll get on top of that food like nobody's business. So I got to watch this plate. It delays me making lunch. I'm just like, all right, I got to train this cat not to do this. So I got a water bottle. And I'm like, I put it on the squirt, you know, (laughs) setting. And so I'm just drilling this cat. This cat will stay and eat food while you're just drilling him with water. He doesn't even care. He's like, I'll lick myself later. You know, these cats don't typically like water. This cat, this cat will get two or three more licks in before he, he gets off the table where he's supposed to be. So I say that to say, that's a great illustration of this word, tereo. I literally have to keep 
an eye on this valuable food because when he gets up there and you hadn't seen him, you're like, okay, what did he lick? What did he step on? What did he rub his fur? I mean, you're just like the whole, all the food's got to go. You know what I mean? And so you watch it with a clear, focused, fixed vision on this food. And again, the reason I'm going through all of this detail is because oftentimes this word is just substituted as a synonym for obey. And it's not a direct synonym for obey. I think there's a subtle nuance here. I want to bring that out now, but I wanted to set the stage. Now, is the ultimate goal or outcome of this word obedience to Jesus' teaching? Yes, that's the ultimate goal. But it's because I value, I highly prize it. I'm taking it in, I'm hearing it, I'm considering it. And then I respond to it and I obey it. But this is not the same word as obey. What I would say, it's the heart attitude of being willing to evaluate and take Jesus's word so seriously that they would, that his audience would keep their eye on his words, value them, adjust their thinking to them, et cetera. In fact, one commentator said it this way, the verb keep denotes a watchful and sympathetic concern to obey that which has been commanded. The saved one finds with, within himself a growing love for and desire to obey his command. Such a, a keeping of God's command is not legalism, but a voluntary internalization of his commands as a pattern for practical conduct. So I would say this word simply reflects the heart attitude. And isn't that what Jesus has been criticizing with this very group? You don't have the heart attitude to even listen to me. You're rejecting me outright. And so he's encouraging them to, quote unquote, keep his word or to keep an eye on his word. By the way, to show the difference between this word, tereo, and obedience, go no further than Romans 7. You've got a man in Romans 7 who wants to do everything right. He's got the heart desire. He values God's word. He's got no problem in that area. He doesn't have the power to execute his desires because he's not functioning from the right source to actually empower him to obey. He doesn't learn about that or doesn't mention that until Romans 8, which is the indwelling spirit of God. So he wants to do it. He's tereo, but he's not hupotasso. He's not, he's not obedient. He hasn't found the power to be empowered, but he wants to do the right thing. This is what I think Jesus is saying. Eyes fixed, value on Jesus said, and this is what they weren't doing. And so they were actually doing the opposite here, weren't they? They were rejecting him, even though he had authority from God, God the Father. And so I would actually say, I would make the argument that in this particular context, with this particular audience, in this particular setting in Jesus's conversation, I think Jesus is using the word keep as a synonym for faith. It's considering what Jesus is saying and being convinced that there's value in what he's saying. In fact, if something, if you have determined that something doesn't have value, you won't believe it. You get these messages on Facebook, advertising messages. You're like, ah, you know, I don't need an automatic, whatever, pickle cutter or something, you know. It's like, there's no value there. But this is the, this is the thing. And so I think that he is tying these things together. See, Jesus's audience, what were they doing? Dishonoring him, dishonoring his word. And as a result, they wouldn't believe in him. Jesus is saying, you got to value what I'm saying. And the one who values what I'm saying, the one who will actually consider what I'm saying and put their faith in that, rely on what I'm saying, then there is a promise for this. And this is the condition that needs to be met for the promise given to be fulfilled. And he says it this way, he shall never see death. The one who keeps my word shall never see death. See just means to look closely, to gaze at, to look at interest for a purpose. It usually indicates the careful observation of details. And so the idea is communicated 
that by keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus and fixed upon his message, they will never have to gaze closely at death. In other words, they won't have to experience death. Death is, is defined a lot of different or, or described a lot of different ways in the Bible, but ultimately means separation. And in this case, I believe he's talking about separation from God for eternity. The father that they claimed, they would experience separation from him if they didn't value or trust in Jesus's words. And what's really cool uh, about this whole thing is, as I said, Jesus introduced this first emphatically. He's going to close it out just as emphatically. This word never, this is one of those times where translation is kind of fun because they translate a phrase with one word. And the, the one word is never, but the phrase that's actually used here that Jesus speaks is extremely emphatic. It's ume, ice, tone, iona. How many? That's five words. That's five words there translated by this word never. Some of you know this because we've studied this in eternal security, but ume is a double negation. Now, if you start talking in double negations in English, no one knows what you're talking about. You're like, did you mean that? Or does it cancel out? You know, it's kind of weird. But in the Greek, a double negation, especially ume, has this way of emphatically stating that something never can happen. U means never, me means never. When you put it together, it's never, no, not ever. So that's the first part of that phrase. Okay, that, that alone could translate the word never. That would be emphatic. This would be like taking the word never and putting an exclamation point on the back end of it. But then he adds this additional phrase, ice tone, Iona. And it literally means into the ages or forever. And so if we were to put it all together, what Jesus just said is the person who keeps his word or believes his word shall never, no, not ever gaze upon death into the ages. You see how strong that is? It's, it's not just an exclamation point. It is like taking the word never, bolding it, underlining it, italicizing it, and then slapping on like little girls do on their text messages, 400 exclamation points. That's what it is right there. This is how he closes this. Now, is Jesus's audience going to pick up on what Jesus just said? Are they going to pick up on the emphatic nature of what he just said? Well, let me give you a sneak preview to next week. Then the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. <laughs> they picked up on it. They don't like it. And that's where we're going to kind of conclude next week. And one of the things I love uh, about next week is I said uh, last week that verse 44 was one of my favorite all-time mic drop moments in the ministry of Jesus. Next week, we get to see the one that competes for top prize because <laughs> he has another mic drop moment here as we close out chapter eight next week. Let me close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. We love looking at you in the scriptures. We love just considering your life and your heart and the way that you, you speak and the things that are important to you. And pray that we did that well. We did that in a way that was honoring to you that brought you glory. And Lord, we, we pray as we leave today, this morning, uh, whenever that is, if we're leaving now or leaving after the chili cook-off, that we would just walk out of here with our head held high, that you would be exalted in our thinking. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.